there was a man who wanted to become a monk. So he went to a monastery. The head monk said to him, well, if you become part of this monastery, you have to agree to a vow of silence, which means you can only speak two words every three years. The guy agreed. So he was there for three years. The head monk came to him and said, okay, you've been here three years. What are the two words you want to speak? And these were his two words, food, cold. Waited another three years. Head monk came to him and said, okay, now the three years are up. What are your two words? He said, bed, hard. (laughs) Waited another three years. Head monk came to him and said, okay, what are your two words? He said, I quit. (laughs) The head monk said, well, I'm not surprised. You've done nothing but complain ever since you got here. (laughs) And that stupid little story reminds me of the Israelites. Because when I read through the book of Exodus and Numbers, I want to say, these guys have done nothing but complain ever since they got out of Egypt. Now, I counted eight records in the Bible that actually talk about their grumbling or complaining, I might have missed a couple. And that doesn't seem like much over 40 years, but remember this. The Bible is not recorded every time they complained, but gives to us highlights of what they were actually doing, and we find out that they were a complaining people. They were professional complainers. They had it honed to a fine art. No one could complain like the Israelites. And here we come to Numbers 21 this morning. And we run into some more complaining. Turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. If you need a pew Bible, it should be on page 151. Now before we get to the story of their complaint, the first three verses tell us about a victory. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, if you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally deliver these people over to you. That's a little literal rendering of the Hebrew. We will devote them to you if you devote them to us. Deliver them to us. So verse 3, the Lord listened to Israel's plea, gave the Canaanites over to them, and the Israelites completely destroyed them in their towns, so the place was named Hormah. Now what is interesting about Hormah is that 40 years before the Israelites fought a battle there and lost. It was right after the 12 spies went in to look at the land. They came back with the report, it's a great land, but the giants are there. Obstacles too great for us to overcome. Let's not go up. And so they said, we're not going to follow the Lord's command. God said, all right, I'm going to have you wander in the wilderness for 40 years. The people said, oh, we're sorry. We'll go up now and we'll battle. And God said, don't do it. Don't go up because I'm not with you. And they said, we don't care. We're going up anyway. And they went up and they got defeated at Hormah. Last verse, Numbers chapter 14. Now that was the old generation. And they're the ones who began to die off in the wilderness. 
And now we've come almost to the end of the 40 years. And most of the old generation is gone. So we have high hopes for this new generation, don't we? I mean, this is a new group of people. They're the ones who have the guarantee from God. They're getting the land. And now their first encounter with the Canaanites, and they win. And with that victory fresh upon their heart, within weeks, they're complaining. It doesn't take you and I long to go from victory to complaint, right? From conquest to complaint. Look at verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the road to the Red Sea to go around Edom. Edom would not grant them safe passage through their land. So they had to go around the land of Edom, which meant the trip was going to be a lot longer. And it was going to be a lot harder through a more arid desert than they had ever experienced before. And they were backtracking a little bit. And so they began to complain. The sin of complaining is what we are introduced to at the very beginning of the story. The Bible says the people grew impatient because of the way. There's a Hebrew idiom here. It literally says their souls were short. They were short-souled, S-O-U-L. Short-souled. Now, we have an idiom in English that's very much like this. We say people are short-fused. <laughs> short-souled means you don't have much long-suffering, the opposite, in your heart. You don't have much patience, and when things go hard, you quickly snap, lose your cool. Short-fused, become angry, upset, irritated. And that's what happened to the people of God. They grew impatient because of the long, hard road. They spoke against God and against Moses, and this is what they said. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? Now that's a little different than some of their other complaints. Before they said, why have you brought us here? Comma. To die in the desert? Question mark. Or period? Question mark. But now they're saying, why have you brought us here to die? Death is a foregone conclusion. It's inevitable. We're going to die. Why did you bring us here out of Egypt to die in the desert? We could have stayed back in Egypt and died. In fact, in chapter 20, that's one of the things they said. Would we have fallen before with our comrades, whether in Egypt or under one of the judgments of God? And they went on to complain, there is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Now they were physically exhausted, emotionally they were spent, stressed out, spiritually depressed. I get that. Not having any bread, they feared starvation. Not having any water, they were probably dehydrated. I understand that. But they said, we detest this miserable food. What food are they talking about? Manna. Whom Asaph, in Psalm 78, verse 25, called angel's food. <laughs> There's a contrast for you. Family comes down to dinner, 
food is set before the family. One family member says, this looks delicious. And usually one of the kids says, I'm not eating that disgusting food. Has that ever happened to you? And they begin to complain. God says this is angels' food. And these people say we're not eating it. In fact, the New Living Translation says we hate this horrible manna. We're sick of it. And we're not going to eat it. And so they began to complain. I think one of the worst jobs in the world would be to work in the complaint department. At a store. At an airline. I mean, whoever comes in that door to talk to you is not a happy camper. And if I were working in a place like that, this is what I would suggest. A button like this at the complaint department. Because I have no patience for complainers. And yet, I'm a complainer myself. It's easy to complain. You see, when we lose a grateful heart, we're filled with a sense of entitlement. And when you think you expect more than you're getting, you will always complain. And I say Christians have taken it to a fine art because even though the world can complain, they can't hold a candle to us because we have God and we still complain. Doesn't change as much. Complaining is, it, maybe it's a, it's a sincere, honest concern that has a bad attitude. Instead of looking at the situation and understanding God's involved, we forget God. And so they didn't acknowledge God's kindness in the past. They didn't appreciate God's presence with them in the present. They didn't accept God's sovereignty. And they wouldn't trust God's word. And when you get into that situation, my friend, you are ripe to be a good complainer. And you'll complain just about everything. Night and day. They were more adept at itemizing their grievances, Ray Brown says, than counting their blessings. And they complained one thing after another. They had God's word. Numbers 15.2 said, When you enter the land, that, it was a foregone conclusion. It wasn't death. It was victory entering into the land. When you enter the land, I want you to act like this. But they're convinced they weren't going to make it. They didn't embrace the promise of God. And I wonder how shocking it must be to the angels of heaven to view how much the people of God complain. How insulting it is to the God of heaven that we spend our life complaining when I read this section of scripture, it sounds like the other seven times when the people of God complained, except for this one key factor, verse 5, they spoke against God. Now before, they used to speak against Moses. Now they've come out blatantly, boldly, blaming God. Can you imagine that? It is sad when Christians get into such a situation that we've taken our eyes off of the Lord and we can't see what he wants to do even in the midst of our difficulties. I think it was Abraham Lincoln who said some people 
look at a rose bush and complain because of the thorns. Some people look at a thorn bush and rejoice because of the roses. We look at life and if we take God out of the picture, that's all we see are the thorns. But if we understand that God has a purpose and he's leading us by his grace, his word is faithful and true, his sovereign providence is guiding over us, and his presence will go with us, if we see God in the equation, will we not rejoice because of the roses? But they complained, and they were good at it. We go from the complaint, the sin, to the judgment of God. Correction. Now what's unusual about the text here is that often God would first show his glory. And then he would warn the people. And then judgment or correction might come. But there's no warning here. There's no correction here. I mean, there, there, there's no word of warning before the correction. Verse 6 the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. The Hebrew word for poisonous or venomous is fiery snakes. Actually, it comes from the same word, seraph, where we get seraphim. And it speaks of something that burns. So it's most likely referring to the inflammation that would take place after someone was bitten by one of these poisonous snakes. The Lord sent poisonous snakes among them. They bit the people and many people died. Death was all around the camp. Poisonous snakes. I'm like Indiana Jones in only one area. I hate snakes. I don't think I would enjoy being in a place like this. There is an account from the diary of the true Lawrence of Arabia who went into the same area many years later and he wrote, this territory has something sinister to it because it is snake devoted. The plague of snakes, which had been with us since our first entry into the Sirhan, today rose to a memorable height and became a terror to us all. The valley seemed creeping with horned vipers. Puff adders, cobras, black snakes. Movement by night was dangerous. The boldest of us feared to touch the ground. So God didn't have to do a whole lot to send the snakes. All he had to do is take away that which was holding them back. Sometimes that's how God sends correction and judgment. He's protecting us. He's protecting us. He's got the hedge about us. His arms are there. He's put limitations to the devil and temptation. And then sometimes God pulls those away. And now the consequences of their sin are all of these snakes naturally in the area doing the bidding of God. By the way, this is the last recorded grumbling of the people of God. Somehow this got through to them. How trivial now seems their complaint about their diet, about the manna. Something far more serious and deadly has taken its place. But God has a purpose in all of this correction, this judgment. His desire is to draw his people back to himself. 
C.S. Lewis, in, in his classic statement, reminds us that pain insists that we give it attention. God may whisper to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us sometimes quietly in our conscience. But he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to grab hold of your attention. His ultimate purpose in giving us trouble, allowing us trials, is to drive us back to himself. So maybe the thing that you're going through, that I'm going through, is God's megaphone. Maybe we didn't listen when he spoke softly, and now he's going to shout. And our situation demands our attention. We cannot ignore it. And we find that God is working in it all to correct us. Because if we continue on this path, this path of complaining, it is certain destruction. So we go from the judgment or the correction to the confession. Verse 7. The people came to Moses and said, Moses, we have sinned. It wasn't too difficult for them to confess that in the midst of this situation. Imagine them laying on their beds, fever increasing. They're feeling their very life ebbing away slowly. They see loved ones who have already died and they're contrite. And I think... Truly so. We have sinned. By speaking against you, God, and against your representative Moses, we have sinned. Then their prayer request is very specific. Moses, will you pray to the Lord to take away the snakes? <laughs> and here is quite an amazing statement. So Moses prayed for the people. Isn't that astounding? I don't know what Moses prayed. The, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I'm sure he prayed that God would deliver his people. Moses prayed for the people. How would you have responded in that situation? If hours before these very people were eviscerating you and now they're entreating you, help us, pray for us. You're a scumbag, you're dirt. What's wrong with you? Help us. But Moses has a shepherd's heart. And Moses is not listening to the criticisms of the people because he's got a commission from God. One of the great marks of Christian maturity is that we listen to God above the voices of everyone else. In fact, you will never serve God if you listen to what other people say about you. You never accomplish anything if you listen to the criticisms. Someone sent me an article uh, that came from uh, Regina Brett. She's a 90-year-old columnist for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. She wrote a column one time called The 45 Lessons I've Learned from Life. Some are good, some are not so good. But this one I really loved. I had to write it down. She said, this is one of the lessons she learned in life, what other people think of you is none of your business. <laughs> That's good. How come we're so fixated on what other people say? God said, Moses, you're the mediator for these people. I know what they've been doing to you. But believe me, they do it to me too. And someday my son is going to pray, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. 
Moses, with the heart of a true pastor, prays for the people. Boy, we see this scenario repeated over and over in our life. We complain. Correction comes. We confess. And now the mercy of God begins to flow. Look at verse 8. The provision of God's amazing mercy. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake. And had I been there, I might have said, Lord, we have enough of those. Let's come up with something else. God says, no, make a snake. Put it on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake. Or maybe copper is a better translation. The purer metal. Make a metal snake. Put it up on a pole. Then when anyone has been bitten by a snake and looks at the bronze snake, they will live. Now what did God not do for his people? Take away the snakes. You say, why? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. Take away the snakes and the people of God go back to complaining. Right? Take away the trials in life and you and I wouldn't pray as much as we do. We wouldn't learn to trust God and walk with him and depend on him as much as we must. Take away our trouble and we easily forget God. So God says... This is what I'm going to do. Snakes are still there. But I'm going to put in the midst of your life a solution to all of your troubles. I am Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And I've got a way to take care of your problem. It's a bit unusual. And it's going to take faith. It's not the bronze snake who saves them. It's belief and trust in God's promise that saves them. It's acting upon the word of God. It's believing and obeying. That simple act of faith. Look and live. You say, well, why why did God make a snake? John Calvin has an interesting response. He says, I think God came up with something so preposterous as to be laughable so that there would be no clear connection between the healing and the problem so that in the end God would get all the glory in other words I'm going to come up with something that seems to be so disconnected that I will be the one who will get the glory for the healing that's one idea and not a bad idea It is unusual, but but I kind of lean more toward the fact that this is a votive offering. What's a votive offering? Well, it's where something is offered as a remedy or sacrifice that has a connection with the problem. This happened in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when the Philistines sent the ark of God back on a cart and they put votive offerings along with it to appease God. They're pagans and that's the way they did things. But even conservative theologians say there's this principle of inversion going on here. So that the thing that brought the pain, in a sense, becomes the symbol of salvation. So maybe that's why the snake is there. Certainly there's no connection to some type of serum that would 
take care of the snake bite and bite and eliminate the death and the poison. It's interesting that God would choose a snake. There are bad snakes in this chapter, the ones that bite and you die, but this is a good snake. By the way, there's something like 25,000 different varieties of snakes. Most of them are good. This is a real good snake. Here's a picture that our children's ministry uses of this story. We handed out last week in our children's ministry these Bible storybooks. And if you didn't get one as a family for your kids, make sure you see Heidi or Kathy or one of the children's workers. But here's that picture of the snake on a pole. Not sure that it's bronze, but you get the idea. What an unusual thing it was. One theologian mentioned some unusual dimensions to this deliverance, this saving experience. And I want to give them to you just rather quickly, and I've changed some and added some, but here are seven unusual aspects, dimensions to this saving provision of God's mercy. Number one, it was deliverance by a unique method. It was indeed unique. Secondly, it was totally undeserved. They deserved to die. But God in mercy provided life. They desperately needed it. Without it, they would die. It's offered to everyone. Whether it's the Levite or the handmaid, the servant boy or the wealthy landowner, everyone was offered to look and live. It must personally be appropriated or accepted. It's not enough to say, I believe the snake will heal. You have to look in faith. It's divinely guaranteed. Look and live. And there's immediate effectiveness. Because the moment you do look and live, the poison that was coursing through your body is somehow stemmed and pulled out. And health begins to replace death in a moment of time. That's some kind of unusual salvation. Now what do you do with a snake, a good snake like this? I mean, they have to break camp. They do so in verse 10 and off they go. What do you do? You know, they're, they're pulling down their tents and they're gathering their things. And someone says, hey, what, what are we going to do with this bronze snake? Should we throw it away? No, we're not throwing that thing away. That snake is God's snake. Moses made that snake. That's a good snake. Let's keep it. It'll remind us of how God gave mercy to us when we didn't deserve it. And so they packed the snakes along with their goods and went off. And they carried that snake through the last couple years of the wilderness wandering. And as they went into the land to occupy it, And they kept the snake during the monarchy period. They kept that snake for 700 years. 700 years. And they used it, I'm sure, in different ways. But eventually, they probably put it back on a pole and maybe even put it in the temple. And we come 700 years later to the time of Hezekiah, he's a young king, 25 years old, and he sees that the land is filled with idolatry, and he is quite upset. 
The Bible tells us he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Hezekiah knew that if revival would come to the land, he first of all had to get rid of all that was wrong and evil, and so he began to purge the land of its idols. He removed the high places. That's where they worshipped. He smashed the sacred stones. That's sometimes where they would place their sacrifices. He cut down the Asherah poles. There were other poles dedicated to the goddess of fertility that involved all kinds of sexual immorality in their worship. He got rid of those. And oh yeah, he did this. 2 Kings 18 verse 4. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. They called it Nahushtan. Not sure exactly what that means. It could mean, since it sounds like the Hebrew word bronze, it could mean that bronze snake. Or Tehushtan could refer to the Hebrew word unclean. And maybe it was Hezekiah who said, get rid of the unclean snake. This is a good snake gone bad. I mean, I can understand the people wanting to keep it, right? It's a good relic. A wonderful memento. It reminds us of what's happened in the past, but the problem with our mementos is that they soon pass on to a level of being iconic. And we begin to fall down and worship them so that you've got religious people today kissing pictures, kissing statues, praying to idols as though those idols could help. Do you think they prayed to the bronze snake? They burned incense to it. That's praying. And you and I have the same tendency to canonize things that worked in the past, maybe traditions, and we don't have sometimes the spiritual discernment to differ between the gift and the giver. And we begin to worship the thing instead of the God who sent the thing. And I dare say that each one of us have some good snakes who've gone bad in our own life right now. And the only thing you can do with a snake like that is smash it and get rid of it. Do you think anyone complained when Hezekiah broke it? Oh, I'm sure they did. That's been in our church for hundreds of years. Calvin said that we have within us the capacity to manufacture idols all the time. And that's what we do. We're good at making idols. And we've got to constantly smash the stones, take down the poles, eliminate the high places of our heart, and cause Christ Jesus to reign supreme again. That's what revival is. Take down the idols. So what do you do with a good snake? Well, I, I like what John the Apostle did. Actually, Jesus did this. But John gives us the story. John chapter 3. Remember Nicodemus came to Jesus by night? He was a religious teacher and Jesus said, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus said, how can I be born again? Enter into my mother's womb a second time. He said, no, no, you've got to be born of the Spirit of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then he used this illustration. He said, 
as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, high so everyone could see, so the Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross, high for everyone to see. And whoever believes in him, which is like looking, shall not what? Perish. That's what's going to happen because we've been bitten by sin and the wages of sin is death. We won't perish if we look to him in faith, but we shall live, have eternal life. And then the most popular verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. It's the story of Numbers 21. And there are some unique dimensions and properties to the salvific work of Christ on the cross. There's some unique perspectives to the saving work of Jesus on the cross. Let me mention them to you and see if they sound familiar. Number one, it's deliverance that comes in a unique way. Secondly, it is totally undeserved. None of us deserve to be saved by Jesus. Thirdly, we desperately need Christ or we will be lost forever. It's offered to everyone Jew, Gentile, old, young, rich, poor, male, female, black, white, on and on you can go with all the different demographics. Christ is offered to all. He's the Savior of the world. It must personally, the salvation that Christ offers must personally be appropriated or received. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, look to Jesus Christ. Look to Christ and live. It's divinely guaranteed. If you look, you will live. And it's immediately effective. The day you look, you are wonderfully saved. Isaiah gives us a similar Old Testament text. Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me, all you ends of the earth and be saved, for I am God and there is none other. <laughs> the great conversion of Charles Spurgeon took place on that text, Isaiah. It's an amazing story. It was a January and in England, 1850, and the snow came down so hard they had to almost cancel church. I don't know if you can identify with that. But it happened in 1850. Spurgeon decided, seeking for Christ, to go to church. And he ended up wandering into a different church than he was planning to go to. And the main preacher couldn't make it because of the snow. And a layman got up there with just a few people in the building. He opened up his Bible to Isaiah 45, verse 22. He hadn't preached much before, so he read the verse. Look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am God and there is none other. He closed his Bible... And then he began to divide the text. Look. Anybody can look. You can look. I can look. Doesn't take much to look. Don't have to have any money to look. Look. And you will live. Talked about life in Christ. You'll be saved. And then he got to pointing at people in the congregation. Now, again, there weren't many people there. And he sees this young boy, about 16, sitting under the balcony. He says, young boy, if you will look to Christ, you'll live. And Spurgeon said at that moment, the word of God got hold of my heart and I saw Christ in his beauty like I'd never seen him before as a sufficient savior for my sin. And I looked and I've never stopped looking since. 
It's the look that saves. It's the look of faith, of total trust in Jesus Christ. Have you ever embraced him? That's what this good snake is all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you will help each one of us to examine our own hearts. On the one hand, if we are Christians, to take down anything we've made into an idol, any bronze snake that we are worshiping. And if we're not Christians, Lord, let us see that this Old Testament story of the snake on a pole is to teach us that one day Jesus would be lifted up. He would draw all people to him. And he offers a salvation that we don't deserve. It's the only remedy for our sin. Maybe someone here today will look and live. Look to Jesus Christ and live. May that happen. In Jesus' name we pray.